Good day. Welcome back to Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I am pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is Professor of History at Exeter University and is without a doubt the most prolific author writing in the English language today and with over well over 100 books written so far. And today we are speaking in the next episode of Arguing History on the subject, the British Empire. Was it a good thing? Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor Black, uh, I would like to commence this discussion by quoting two statements, incidentally both from the same book, Niall Ferguson's Empire, How Britain Made the Modern World. The first statement is a quote from the BBC website circa 2000, in which it is stated, quote, The British Empire came to greatness by killing lots of people and stealing their country, unquote. The second statement is that of Ferguson himself, in which he states, The fact remains that no organization in history has done more to promote the free movement of goods and capital and labor than the British Empire in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And the thing that sets it apart from the continental, and I might add, Asiatic rivals, was the idea of liberty, unquote. I suppose my question for you, Professor Black, would be, which of the two statements uh, of, of which I've just made would you say is more, more historically accurate? Well, the latter one is more historically accurate. So, of course, Niall Ferguson's only talking about a period of the empire. The first one is ridiculous. I mean, the concept of the empire uh, taking away other people's um, countries is a farcical one. In most places where imperial power was extended, it was a matter of supplanting or competing with other empires, most obviously in India, for example, where the Mughal Empire had itself been established by conquest in the 1520s. Also, I mean, let's face it, the BBC is not exactly a place anybody would turn to for any understanding of history, but also insofar as the idea of an empire being particularly one of killing people, A, that wasn't the intention of the empire, certainly not of the British Empire. After all, um, people who were imperial subjects were a source of hopefully prosperity and not least military service. But uh, on top of that, the British Empire didn't have the kind of genocidal or proselytizing drives uh, which can encourage the killing of those of different ethnicities or religion. So no, the, the BBC uh, phrase is complete drivel. And I think Ferguson captures a an aspect, not the sole aspect, but an aspect of Britain. I would take it a bit further. I mean, if he's looking at, or if you're looking at the late 19th and 20th century empires, certainly most imperial apologists took the view that empire was a stage in human development and that the uh, eventual outcome would be self-governing uh, states or polities within a broader family of nations, which was eventually to be conceptualized as the Commonwealth. Now, um, we may not be delighted, or some may not be delighted on the terms of that deal, but that was a very different intention as far as empire was concerned to the notion of a permanent control 
and a centralized control. Uh, what does the world mean when it refers ever so casualty, casually to the, quote, British Empire, unquote? Well, that's a very good question, Charles, because what the empire means is very different if one's looking at 1600, 1700, 1800 or any other particular year. And what you, I think, are correctly implying by this is that one of the problems is the notion that there is a unitary state of empire. This unitary state is often defined for commentators, notably critics, but not just critics, as being its last hundred years. And there is a tendency to read back from that. So many of the publications on empire are curiously lacking in a perception of earlier imperial episodes by British power and tend instead to focus on the 19th or 20th century. So, for example, one could discuss, you might take different views on it, we could discuss it, the extent to which the Crown of England wielded power in the medieval period within what is now France or within what is now Ireland or sought to do so in Scotland. We could look at the mercantile uh, element of the 17th century, where in many senses there was only a limited desire to rule territory because obviously what most people wanted was profit. And on the uh, model of the Venetian or Dutch empires, profit was best obtained through trade, not through actually bearing the protection costs of ruling areas. Or we could go back and look at the uh, pretensions of the old English monarchy in the 10th century to dominion over Britain, over the British Isles, or at least over what is now Britain. Um, so there are very diff many different stages, and we can also sort of slow that up by noticing that in particular periods, uh, one can see this certainly in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, but I would put it to you, you can see it prior to that as well, uh, there were competing agendas among those who were politically influential in Britain. So um, you had, for example, it has been argued, and I think with some truth in the, let's say, the early 18th century, very different tendencies as to the desirability of rule over territory as opposed to being a maritime dominant power. And it's really when you look more recently and from the perspective of the more recent past and in sort of the way in which an obsession with India as the sort of supposed model of empire, which it certainly was not, um, but that, that obsession with that means that people tend to uh, often downplay the variety. And you're telephoning from the United States. I mean, one can see this variety simply, for example, in the terms of the nature of British colonies and the British imperial presence in North America from the 16th century onwards. I mean, it begins with fishing off the coast of Newfoundland, which I'm not sure most people today would see as empire, but in fact, you know, it was an important transoceanic presence. We move forward when you look at settlement colonies to very different systems of governance. Uh, both internal and from London. And you can think of the contrast between, say, Massachusetts and uh, South Carolina in that respect. If you factor into the North American equation, 
the way in which the Hudson Bay Company uh, maintained, as it were, British authority in the subarctic world in a totally different fashion to, shall we say, the colonies of East and West Florida, which were gained from Spain in the 1760s. And then you could add the variety of the West Indies. You could note the fact that some of these colonies had large and harshly treated slave uh, populations as a key element of their political economy, whereas other colonies did not. And you start to see the variety just simply um, in, you know, in, in the Americas, let alone thinking about the varieties offered by such um, imperial possessions as Gibraltar or for a while Tangier or the slaving stations in West Africa or state or commercial stations on the coast of Sumatra, etc., etc. So I think one has to be very, very careful before one assumes there is a foundational or, you know, uh, after the Mesopotamian city, uh, um, nature of empire. And, you know, at times I'm sure I uh, fall into a slipshod fashion of referring to the empire as if it is a unity. I apologize if I do, because my various publications on it, including my book on the rise of the British seaborne empire, have been, have been sort of presented very deliberately to emphasize this variety. And lastly, one of the disappointing aspects of the low caliber of much of the public diatribe about empire at the moment. And I'm ashamed to say that much of this diatribe can be found in academic circles among supposed scholars who should know better, as well as in the more general public. One of the aspects of it is often to imply or explicitly argue that there is a common genesis and character to a identity called the British Empire, when in practical terms, it is the variety and the diversity that should be noted. So that begs the question, for example, in the case of, say, Egypt in the 20th century, is Egypt part of the British Empire only from, I mean, at least de jure, it was only from 19, you could argue 1914 to 1922, when it was unilaterally granted independence by the British. Or do you argue that it was uh, uh, no longer part of the British Empire in 1936 when there was a treaty negotiated with the um, independent uh, Egyptian government? Or do you kick it back all the way to 1954 when the uh, withdrawal of British troops is um, agreed upon and or 1956 when they actually do withdraw? And, of course, you have the Suez crisis with the um, nationalization of the Suez Canal Company. Well, you're absolutely, well, you're absolutely right, and you can take that a stage further prior to 1914. Of course, the British invasion of Egypt, uh, or the successful invasion, because there had been uh, prior uh, deployments of British troops there, the successful invasion, as you know, is more than three decades before 1914. Um, what you're capturing is what I've exactly just said, the very varied nature of what we call imperialism. And one can add to that the formalized concept of what is known as informal empire, the idea of a degree of control brought by um, a, a strong position in, ter in terms of trade and financing. So let us say with the British in Argentina in the 19th and early 20th century, or to a degree in parts of China 
um, in the uh, late 19th and 20th centuries. Now, some people would not see that as empire. Um, actually, you could argue it was, and you can take that a stage further. You could argue that it was more important often the investment, interest, governmental support for areas that were regarded as, or that we might regard as some of these areas of informal empire, than areas that might be formally under the British crown, but which were of no particular interest um, to, uh, to policymakers in London, um, let, let alone to investors. So I think what you've captured is the reality, I mean, of, of a diverse situation. And going back to Ferguson's point, if we are looking at the free movement of capital and labor, that free movement is both within the formal empire, shall we say, Indian labor going to Fiji or Natal um, in the 19th century, but is also outside that process, shall we say, Chinese labor going to Queensland in the late 19th century. And both of those are part of the same process, even if the formal manifestation of it is different. And isn't a lot of the criticism of the British Empire by academics and others based on the uh, isolating it as a subject. So we're almost never um, informed or told in these exercises uh, by bien pensant scholars and others uh, how the British Empire would, say, compare or contrast with, say, the Mughal Empire, the Ottoman Empire, or the Manchu Empire, or for that matter, the French or Russian empires of the 19th, early 20th centuries. Well, you're absolutely correct in that. What is, I mean, there seems to be something really low grade in much of this scholarship. In, in, and some of the um, people, and we're talking about full professors in some case, seem to think that shouting abuse about um, the British Empire or about scholars that might um, not be critical of it uh, constitutes an informed uh, ability to assess it. But as you've said, one ought to be comparing it both to other Western empires, and one, one ought to include the United States in that list, and indeed also to non-Western empires. And I would add another thing. I, you know, I've written this book, Imperial Legacies, the British Empire around the world, which you know I, I was pleased to see got criticized in The Guardian, the sort of place one would love to be criticized in. Um, but you know, one of the points I made in that book is that um, after uh, the British Empire formally seized, and ceased, and in many senses you might say informally ceased as well, there was often a far higher level of what one might term brutality, uh, killing of people, a phrase you've used at the beginning from the BBC website, than, in, than during the British imperial presence. I mean, you know, I mean, people tend to forget this. I mean, if you're looking at, say, Nigeria, the Biafran War of the 1960s was appalling. If you're looking at India, people make a lot of, and it, these, some of these episodes were terrible. Um, the um, suppression of the Indian mutiny um, in the 1850s, the Amritsar massacre after World War One. Uh, you know, these were terrible episodes. <laughs> but let's be clear about this. Um, if you're comparing them to the death rates of, for example, the Sri Lankan civil war of the last 20 years, so we're not exactly talking about a long way ago, or the, you know, the large-scale murder and rape of Bengalis by the Pakistan army in what was then East Pakistan, or the brutality of the Indians in both uh, the Punjab against Sikhs and in Kashmir against Muslims, you know, you've got a completely quantum leap difference in terms of brutality and violence. And yet, for some reason, people seem to think it's perfectly acceptable to treat uh, the Amritsar massacre, which was a you know, a bad episode, which was 
fully castigated at the time in Britain. They seem to treat that as emblematic of British imperialism and completely give a sort of free pass to um, post-imperial states. And this is a complete absurdity. Um, and, you know, what troubles me, I mean, you know, you could say, I have friends that say to me, oh, well, history shouldn't indulge in moralism and that you, Jeremy, shouldn't, you know, sink to the level of um, some of these uh, some of these critics by, by, by being moralistic. Well, <laughs> you know, given that in many senses the past is a framework within which people make judgments, it, I think, is as far as possible helpful to try and have a perceptive account of the past. You cannot have a definitive account. You cannot have an account which isn't going to be controverted. But at the very least, it is important, I think, in my view, to try and understand what happened and, as you said, to put it in context. And a lot of the criticism of the British Empire, I'm afraid, simply does not do that. I mean, let me give you another example. Um, shameful episode in Jamaica in the 1860s in which um, the governor responded to opposition with you know, what can only be described as judicial killings. It was shameful. It was wrong. Yes. Uh, again, as you pointed out, let's try and put this in context. Compared to what the Spaniards were doing in Cuba, um, it was nothing. I mean, it was absolutely nothing. That doesn't make it better. It just demonstrates the question about how did 19th century states deal with disaffection and opposition? I mean, you could take the ar argument, if you wish, for example, to extenuate Indian conduct today, in, whether in Kashmir or in Punjab or in the northeast of India, um, you, you know, if you want to do that, you could say maybe there are generic problems linked to policing within large or even small um, states of these types. I don't know. But if you are going to take that viewpoint, then it, really it seems rather odd not to consider how the British coped within that context. And if we can move on in the comparative sense, another good instance of comparative uh, judgment, in my view. And again, you know, you might say this is being moralistic, but in fact, human rights now is very much part of the agenda of life and the discussion of, of present societies, is think about the treatment of minorities. If you were a copt in Egypt, you would have much better off under the British Empire than what than under independent uh, Egypt. If you were a Jew in the Middle East, you were much better off under the British Empire than under you know the policies of states like Iraq subsequently. And I think people need to understand that there were differences. Of course, there are things that the British did which at the time were seen as wrong, let alone that we might see as wrong now. Of course, that was the case. But that is not the same as trashing the entire project, nor responding to it with this naivety, which you see in so much of the discussion today. And in terms of uh, the events in Jamaica in, in uh, 1865, wasn't that governor reprimanded by the home government? Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, more than reprimanded. Yes, he was. And there was an enormous furore um, in uh, in England. Interestingly enough, I mean, you know, I'm currently doing a book on England in the age of Charles Dickens. Interestingly enough, Dickens, who was, you know, a radical, um, uh, complained um, 
that um, the critics of the governor uh, were more concerned about the people subject to his control than about the plight of the poor in Britain, which was, you know, I mean, that's a, a separate issue, but it, it does remind us of the variety of narratives uh, that are present at any one time in the past. Wasn't one of the aspects of the British Empire which made it unique in a very positive sense was the interest taken in the language, literatures, and cultures of the people who the British ruled over. I think that makes it highly unique. I do not believe that, for example, the Manchu or the, or the Ming or the Ottomans were particularly interested in the cultures of the people who they ruled. That, again, is a fascinating point. I, I do an exception for the Manchu because they did sinicize in the end. Now, it's become more Chinese, though not to the extent that all the Chinese recognize. But you're absolutely right. Um, part, of, part of this, I think, is to do with the extent to which the British, well, though obviously there were missionaries and evangelicalism, nevertheless, the British um, ruled a, what they understood was a multi-religious empire. I think that was very important in their willingness to respond positively. And partly also it is their self-imaging. They saw themselves as the descendants of the Roman Empire. And they argued that the Roman Empire had similarly ruled over different peoples, different religions, and on the whole, sometimes it got it wrong, but on the whole had tried to do so in a positive light. Um, so that you see um, in Britain the uh, a quite, I mean, you know, there are some cultures which they don't appreciate sufficiently. I think there's no doubt at all about that. But notions such as the noble savage in the 18th century, the wise China, the wise Chinaman in the 18th century, uh, growing interest in the late 18th century in Indian languages and religion, all of those I think are important to a willingness to accept what you might call a multifaceted project of enlightenment. I mean, I think it's quite interesting here that British thinkers by the late 18th century were engaged in a sort of version of enlightenment thought in which there was an understanding that that's that progress, civilization, all of those positives um, were not defined simply in terms of Christian time and, as it were, the divine providentialism linked to uh, the idea of a period of time before a Christian apocalypse. Um, and their notion of that is quite important um, to, I think, a positive engagement. And then again, in, by the 1820s, which is when Catholic emancipation uh, is enacted in Britain for the uh, British Isles, um, there is a greater willingness to be pluralistic in religious terms, and that provides a context uh, within which empire is addressed. How much of a justified stain on the British imperial record was the famines in, in Ireland in the 1840s and in Bengal in the 1940s? Well, they're very different circumstances, of course. Um, and both of them are extraordinarily uh, unwelcome episodes, unwelcome to those people at the time and unwelcome to us considering it in retrospect. I mean, all sorts of problems in the case of Ireland, um, over-dependence on the potato, uh, shall we say, a lack of uh, any real willingness to restrict population numbers, like, like a really effective family planning. Um, 
and of course the the sort of slow response of the British government. Uh, I think those were those were important points, and they are they are sort of things that one should note. Um, and obviously, as you know, this is a period of enormous confusion in Brit- British policy towards food to do with the repeal of the Corn Laws, etc., etc., etc. So we know about that. Uh, 1940s, again, highly contentious. Um, I think the, the key uh, context of it uh, is we were actually at war. Um, the principal source of external rice for India was Burma, uh, Myanmar, that had been occupied by the Japanese in 1942 and was therefore not available as a as a source. Um, there were real questions as to where else you would get um, large quantities of um, of rice from. And I think one needs to put it in that context. I mean, obviously, what has happened is this has been blown up uh, to become a sort of weaponized issue. I think one needs to be much more cautious about that. And again, you raise the issue of comparison. I mean, I would invite you to compare the effect of food shortages in Bengal and government policy relating to them to the effect of food shortages in Java in 1942-43 contemporaneously and the policy of the Japanese occupying government, which was taking vast quantities of rice out of Java in order to move it to Japan. So I think, again, one needs to put these in their context. People don't like doing that, um, but that's what they need to do if they wish to think seriously about a subject. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And how would you rate the British imperial record on the question of slavery, both in isolation as well as comparatively? In isolation, I'm not quite sure where you're driving at. I mean, obviously, Britain became the major slave trader in the Atlantic world in the 18th century uh, and remained in that position until the abolition of the slave trade, which was Britain wasn't quite the first. Denmark, which had thought that it was going to be copying Britain, had actually jumped the gun. Uh, but Britain was the first of the major slave traders uh, to uh, to abolish it, and then obviously devoted a lot of attention to trying to suppress the Atlantic uh, slave trade, and subsequently uh, saw itself as trying to play an active role in ending slavery itself. Now, if you're asking me to put that in its comparative context, and as you will know, there's a, a book by me on the history of slavery, and there's a book by me on the uh, history of the Atlantic slave trade, um, uh, we could have an entirely separate uh, <laughs> program on slavery. In fact, maybe we should do so. Um, slavery and coercive labor systems as a whole, serfdom, indentured labor, conflict labor, um, was a basic staple of labor relations across much of the world until the 19th century. Um, The slavery in Britain um, obviously begins early. There's slavery um, in the Iron Age. Um, There's obviously slavery at a larger uh, larger scale in the Roman Empire. There's slavery under the Anglo-Saxons in the early 
part of the second millennium AD, it dies out to be replaced by serfdom, which in turn dies out um, in the conditions of the shortage after the Black Death. Um, Thereafter, although there are exceptions, forms of collier slavery in Scotland, thereafter slavery is a matter for the British of the external world. Uh, That's relatively unusual in many societies which traded slaves uh, in, in Africa, for example, or in the Islamic world, um, slavery was also a condition of the internal uh, dynamics of that society, its economics, its status, sometimes its um, sexual patterns. Um, uh, so slavery were, was important in those cultures. Um, and I think that needs to be noted. Now, as far as the European slave trade as a whole, the European slave trade as a whole begins in the early 16th century, um, in large part to deal with labor shortages from the European perspective in the New World, uh, shortages partly to do with the introduction of European diseases, uh, involuntary introduction, uh, partly to do with the fact that the natives, particularly those that can, don't particularly wish to be enslaved and are often willing to fight back, and partly to do with the fact that you can buy slaves in Africa because African polities prove only too willing to sell them, which is not surprising because they've been doing that for centuries and centuries, both to each other and to Arab and other Muslim slave traders. So um, what you've got is the Europeans come into this trade. Um, the, uh, the British are not particularly important originally, though there are you know, British slave traders, English slave traders, I should say, from the early 16th century. They become much more significant in the late 17th century and then dominate the industry. Now, uh, before before ceasing to play a role, um, how is that exceptional on the, Euro- on the sort of the global scale? Well, it's an important aspect of the global slave economy. It's not by any means the original one, um, nor is it by any means the most important in the sense that the most important in society after society are slaves who are indigenous to that society or immediate area. In other words, you know, there is actually a cost to moving slaves across the Atlantic. You have to buy them and you then have to transport them. And roughly, I mean, you know, there is by period, but roughly if you were thinking to 14 to 17% of the slaves die in transit, roughly the same percentage as the sailor, um, then you will, you know, you will be aware that this is economically has its big problems as a trade. So you're much better off if you can use slaves coming from within the next, you know, 100, 200, 300 miles, as is the pattern, for example, with seizing people in, say, native societies among Native Americans or indeed more generally in Africa. Um, where are we now? Well, we're at the present moment, uh, part of the beating up on British history, which you see particularly now in Britain, is to try and define uh, Britain's role in slavery as uniquely wicked and uniquely bad. I mean, that's just silly. Um, and you can't help wishing, again, here I'm being moralistic, but let's be moralistic. Uh, There is slavery in the present day. The United Nations estimates are 20 to 30 million Um, societies like Mauritania, for example, uh, Sudan uh, have um, slaves. Uh, You have people who are akin to slaves in societies like Pakistan. One would like to think that people who spend their time, you know, shouting about statues of roads with action, Cecil Rhodes, could do something or urge something to do with the situation around the world at this present moment. 
government. And that, of course, doesn't include which what I would say, which the United Nations chooses in its infinite prejudice to ignore, which are the strong tr- traditions of slave uh, state slavery. So I would argue that the entire population of North Korea are slaves. I would argue, I have argued in my books on slavery, that if you're looking at, for example, those who were uh, in, you know, imprisoned for life and uh, worked to often to death in the Soviet gulags or the uh, those of the German concentration, uh, sorry, ex- the concentration camps. I'm not talking about the extermination camps where many of them were killed within a day, but concentration camps uh, where the intention was to work them to the death. I would argue those are the true definition of modern slavery and that there are modern, as I've said, North Korea is not the only instance. There are modern equivalents. And I find it very disappointing in the extreme that modern critics of slavery in the 18th century can't get their act together to think about the situation in the present day. Um, I, I gave a lecture about um, in Black Awareness uh, Month some years ago at the National Maritime Museum. And I said, you know, at the end, because you know, there was all this business about should we apologize for the 18th century came up. And I said, if we want to apologize for anything, I said, there'll be slaves within five miles of here. There'll be people who've been transported across boundaries against their will, uh, often drugged or otherwise misused in order to become sex slaves or in order to become forced labor. And I said, those are the people we ought to be thinking about and not something in the past that we can do nothing about. Would you agree with the following argument, uh, which I label as mischievous but true argument, which is that uh, per contra to the post-colonial thesis, it was not so much the uh, harm done by British imperialism, which negatively affects the third world at the moment, but you could argue per contra that it was the insufficient amount of British imperialism which had a negative impact on the uh, third world um, at the present moment. I'm thinking in particular of the fact that uh, present-day states, which had a longer period of British imperial rule, like Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Malta, the white dominions, etc., have uh, in the present day much better track records on any scale that you wish to compare them to, to say uh, nations in sub-Saharan Africa or the near Middle East, where the time period of British dominion was much shorter. Yes, I think that's interesting. I wouldn't say, you know, hard and fast in all cases, but I think that's very interesting. I mean, that loops back to my earlier point that often after the British rule has ended, these societies have become more violent. And also another point made to me very strongly by Indians on my last visit to India is how the level of corruption has become much uh, stronger in Indian society and Indian politics. And, you know, in things like road contract awarding was one that I was being particularly told about than when the British were there. So, yes, I think that there are serious issues about uh, the nature of, uh, of governance. And of course, one of the things I was trying to talk about is in imperial legacies is that what has happened is that so many of the political establishments that have 
developed in the in, in the post-colonial world have been people that have a vested interest in a origin narrative that presents themselves as the heirs to a virtuous struggle of driving out the British. So therefore, they have to believe that it was a good thing to drive out the British. They have to believe and tell everybody that it was worse under the British, and they have to believe and tell everybody that it's much better now. And they go on doing this, even though this supposed wicked age uh, constantly is receding. And you would have thought, let us leave aside the supposed iniquities of the British, you would have thought many of these societies, which have been independent for 60 years or so, uh, might have managed to make a better fist of the situation they are in. And then, of course, you have the fact that public intellectuals in in these uh, countries make their career. Uh, in such a way. So it's not surprising that you get a strong sense of mythos. Now, I mean, you know, what's interesting, I mean, you're talking about uh, from the, about the British. You might interestingly look at the analogue with the Americans, for example. That you get all sorts of criticisms of American imperialism and American power. Actually, many societies in the world owe their freedom and their independence to American power uh, and its execution and implementation or presence since the 19th. 1940s. And the obvious examples are places like uh, Taiwan or South Korea. But I mean, one could actually say Western Europe itself. I mean, I'm not sure if the Americans hadn't been there. And as a, and as a physical presence after 1949 in NATO, I'm not sure whether, you know, there might not have been a more assertive uh, Soviet um, interventionism in 1974-5. Uh, the Soviets were thinking, for example, about how best to intervene um, in the in support of the left wingers in the Portuguese Revolution. So the same sort of thing when you look back at the British case, it might seem shocking to some of your listeners to have the idea that. Um, Actually, a period under British imperial rule was not necessarily troublesome, and it might actually have been to the good, but um, actually that could be the case. Again, look at North America. I think you could probably say from the perspective of the First Nations that you were better off being in Canada. I don't mean by that everything the British imperial authorities did was great, but that you were better off being in Canada than you were in the United States or, for example, in Mexico or Argentina. Uh, I mean, you were certainly much better off in being the equivalent of what is now Ontario to being in, say, the Yucatan or or Patagonia, uh, let alone to the, the American West. And and that kind of perspective is unwelcome to people. Um, And again, I mean, you know, I mean, talking about the problems of post-colonial societies, there was an interesting book years ago by Rodney Atwood on Hessians, in which he does some, I mean, one of the things about Hessen Castle, uh, I've been to Marburg, I spent five weeks working in the archives there in 1980. A lot of the Hessian private soldiers were literate. I mean, Protestant society, it had high levels of literacy, and many of them left diaries and letters about their time in North America. And what's interesting, um, and a number of these have been published, and what is interesting is the number of Hessians who commented about how hypocritical it was of Americans to be talking about fighting for their freedom, but at the same time, having large numbers of slaves around the place. Um, And I think that conundrum, that quandary, can also be seen if you are looking at post-colonial societies today. The assumption 
that in some way the original sin is that of imperialism and that that explains everything else you don't like, whether it's to do with gender or ethnicity, um, uh, you know, as if the British, for example, invented the Indian caste system, as if the British, for example, invented slavery in Africa. Well, of course, it's rubbish. Um, but the sad truth is, you and I can discuss this, you and I can refer to scholarly books, you and I can talk about research projects, archivally based research projects, but the sad reality is that shallow and second-rate uh, scholarship and discussion is what seems to get all of the coverage. Indeed, and uh, I suppose when one hears, at least when I hear, castigations of the British imperial record, the question which immediately comes to my mind is, what were, historically speaking, the alternatives? Were the Manchu any better, or for that matter, the Ottomans? Or if you want to go to sub-Saharan Africa uh, regimes, if you want to label them as such, a pre-British rule, were they any better in terms of day-to-day uh, -day existence for the population under their rule? Well, that's, again, very good point. I mean, if we take the area of whatever term you wish to use for it, Israel or part of it is Palestine, whatever, however you wish to define it. I mean, yes, the British were there. They found it jolly difficult in the 1920s, 30s and 40s as the League of Nations mandate power, but they were there. Prior to that, did they take it off some sort of, you know, freedom-loving people, whoever they might supposedly be? No, of course not. Uh, it had been conquered uh, by the Ottomans uh, in 1516 from the Mamelukes, uh, who in turn had conquered it um, in the late 13th century uh, from the local rulers, some of whom were, the, were crusaders, some of whom were non-crusader Muslims. Um, prior to, and then you go back through a series of um, um, Islamic powers, for example, the Fatimids of Egypt and the Selkirk Turks of what we would now call Anatolia competing in the 11th century. You go prior to the uh, Muslim conquests um, in the 7th century, and it's under the Byzantine Empire, which succeeds the Roman Empire, which had conquered it from, um, you know, the Jewish kingdom um, in the 1st century AD. Um, but that kingdom itself had in, it had had only a sort of limited purchase on on freedom going back over centuries in which you'd had Hellenistic and other larger powers in the area, including Egypt, Assyria, and so on. So the idea that in some way um, you've got to, com you know, you can compare uh, a British period of imperialism with a period of freedom. I mean, I think we've got to put a big question mark about that. Uh, you mentioned the Manchu. Of course, the Manchu were conquerors. I mean, you, you, you know, <laughs> the Manchu conquered uh, China in the 1640s and 1650s uh, and then went on, indeed, in the 18th century to be the most successful conquerors at that century in the world on land. I mean, they conquered what is now Mongolia, Xinjiang, Kashgar. Uh, and Tibet, and they invaded unsuccessfully Myanmar and Tonkin, sort of uh, Vietnam, and in the 1680s, they'd kicked the Russians out of the Amur Valley. Now, the idea that you've got some sort of narrative of empire, which is just Westerners, is rubbish, or as you may know, there's a good book by a Finnish scholar, in fact, published by, in English by Yale, on the uh, so-called Comanche Empire of the 19th century, in which it makes the point that you should look at American expansion in the West and the willingness 
of some of the Native American tribes to work with the Americans precisely because of their concern about the Comanches. And that last point is a significant one. The British Empire was dependent repeatedly on local support. In the 18th century, the majority of the soldiers of the East India Company uh, in India were, of course, Indians, but, you know, and they, they were quite happy to... Uh, to work for the British. The British had a good track record of paying them. Um, you know, the, the British often interact with local uh, commercial networks in order to be successful. There's no point having commercial bases like uh, Mumbai or Singapore or Hong Kong unless people are willing to go there and trade with them, unless they're willing to accept um, you know, that uh, you're going to be a fair trader, unless they're willing to accept that you're going to see contracts are observed and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, the, the, this was very important to the logic of the British Empire. And again, we seem to have ignored that. And it also helps to ensure this overlap between what I call informal, and others, of course, call informal and formal empire. Both of them are dependent on a willingness to work with local uh, and other uh, networks, uh, groups, some elite groups, some of them not elite groups. I mean, you know, tends to be forgotten, for example, that in the early 19th century, uh, much of the army of the British Empire were Irish. Um, you, know, you know, it's the willingness, it's the ability. I mean, you know, I mean, there are Irish Fenian, uh, Fenians who fight against the British in the 19th century. They're a tiny minority, just as the people that rose in the Easter Rising in 1916 are a tiny minority compared to the large numbers of Irish Catholics who are, who are willing uh, to serve the British crown. To sum up, would you agree with me that while Sir Winston Churchill's statement of 1954 that the British, British colonialism consisted of, quote, bringing forward backward races and opening up the jungles, unquote, obviously is an exaggeration, the fact of the matter is that on the whole, the British Empire in its role in world history was a good thing. Well, I certainly say it was a good thing. And you only need to think of the contrast between the British Empire and those it fought in World War II um, in Germany, uh, Germany and Japan. And you obviously, you know, when you're looking at, say, uh, British forces, uh, which include um, people from around much of the world, uh, you can see that it was an, an astonishing achievement of an imperial system. Um, the uh, So that, I think, is very significant. I mean, I think Churchill's uh, remark of 1954, like a lot of Churchill remarks, is untoward. Of course, with Churchill, there's always the danger of quoting him out of context, which seems to be a sort of, you know, a sort of habit and hobby. Um, but I think that the, um, the term a good thing um, is possibly a little too um, simplistic. But what I would argue is that as power went and as government went, Britain had has and has had a, in the past, and no comment on the problems of British governance and politics today or worries about its future, but in the past had a more positive, um, uh, uh, more positive course and consequences than that of many of the other Western and non-Western uh, states, whether imperial or not. Well, with that uh, observation, Professor Black, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak to us today. This is Charles Coutillo, 
Thanks for listening to this uh, episode of Arguing History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you again, Professor Black. Thank you very much. And I hope people can read my imperial legacies. Do please read the critical review in The Guardian, but read the book. And then actually you might think about the nature of academic criticism today. Yes, by all means, please do read that wonderful book. <laughs>